Hello, I'm Aaron Fowler and welcome to another episode of the Disability Sports Podcast. I'd like to begin this episode by saying a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast so far. If you can please follow us on social media at the Disability SP, we are on Instagram and Twitter. If you could subscribe to us on YouTube and please follow us on whichever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. The more listeners we get, the more great guests we can continue to bring you. My guest this week is someone who I've had the privilege of getting to know and play rugby with over the last four years. He lost his sight a few years ago following a stroke and talks about what it was like to deal with and also talks a bit about what his rehab involved following his stroke. He also talks about how he got involved with visually impaired rugby and the impact the sport has had on his life so far. My guest this week is a teammate of mine for the England Visually Impaired Rugby team, and he's also the leading try scorer in international visually impaired rugby. His name is Matthew Lancet. Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Matt, and welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi there, Alan. Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, pal. How, how about yourself? You well? I'm very good, thank you. Um, thank you very much for uh, for joining us. Looking forward to kind of you know hearing uh, uh, you know. About your journey and your story so far um so I just wondered if you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself yeah no trouble at all I'm Matt Matthew Matthew Lancet and at the moment I'm 48 and uh, I live with my wife and uh, two children in Malvern which is in the Worcestershire in the Midlands and uh, yeah everything is uh, going going well for me at the moment um, so I want to start off, I guess, with uh, sort of early life, really. I um, just wondered, where did you grow up um, and, uh, you know, what sports did you play when, when you were younger? Yeah, I'd say I've had a strange upbringing, but uh, I started my uh, my journeys or my youth in Malvern, where I am now. And then obviously things happened. So I've moved away and now I lived in Nottingham for a while. And then at the age of 11... I wasn't really settled down that well in Nottingham, so I moved back in uh, where my dad was. So I moved back to Malvern, and I've been there, been here, should I say, ever since. So yeah, so once I got settled down secondary school here, I enjoyed it. I wasn't that sporty to be honest at first because um, a lot of things were going on at school which I didn't really manage to get in with the right people, and obviously you got to think back then I was fine visually wise there was nothing wrong with my vision or anything like that so I wasn't pushed aside due to that but just to other circumstances and then when I was 14 I sort of managed to get myself a little uh, little local job at a local butcher's uh, helping out cleaning weighing up potatoes and just doing things like that and because I was working Saturdays, I didn't get a chance to really do many sports because a lot of the clubs around here was a Saturday based and especially the rugby, which I was really following as a as a teen. I was with the local rugby team and I like following them. So the only days I had was a Sunday. So it just ended up being either a Saturday afternoon local football team or a Sunday morning pub team, which unfortunately it was always the uh, football that took priority. And um, I'm, I'm pretty sure when you were younger as well, you were quite a keen runner. So, you know, how did you sort of first get involved with running? Uh, well, to be fair, it was mostly later on in life I got really keen into running. I didn't do much other than uh, obviously running away from a few uh, lads and things like that <laughs> when I had to. But... Uh, I entered a competition, I think it was sort of 
2015 and it was for the Virgin London Marathon. And then I got an email because they were giving away places for Christmas. I got an email on Boxing Day saying, congratulations, you've been selected. And this was like 2015. So again, I'd heard about lots of scams. and I thought, hey, this isn't right. I was just thinking it was just a scam. But then I chased it up and then they said, yeah, you've been one of the lucky ones. And uh, so I got me running shoes ready on the year, New Year's Day on 2016 and thought, wow, I've got to start doing something because I've only got sort of four months to train for a marathon. And that's when it took off. Local rugby, uh, rugby should I start? Local jogging club, Melbourne Joggers. They said, yeah, come along. And they had a lot of programs set up for a 12-week marathon training. So I joined their program. And managed to get myself just about fit to uh, do that one. And how was the experience of uh, running the London Marathon? Oh, mate, yeah, running is just a, a bug in itself. Some people think, oh, I can't run for that long. I can't do this. Um, once you try certain things and once you get in with a nice bunch of people, you're jogging along. And it's always down to your own preference of pace. Don't worry about others. Just run at your own standards and things like that. And it gets you in a good mindset because you're talking. Next thing you know, you've had a nice natter. You've had a good talk. And then, wow, you've done 5K or three miles, however you want to do it. I'm miles, man, rather than a kilometre person. And then from that, you just go out either on your own with a bit of music. You get in again to the right mindset. Set yourself a target, a time or distance. And it just gives you a real good, uh, good feeling. And to be honest, I suffered a stroke uh 2017 in the august and uh i really missed the running park because when people say you can't run you you really want to so that was a thing for me to lose that sort of uh the only really bit of sport i was doing then and i thought oh that really but then again with yourself knowingly it took me a bit of time and i managed to get into the vision bi rugby with the with the local rugby team uh Worcester Warriors and the feeling that I got from the first time being back and having a rugby ball in my hand was a real good feeling as if when you've done a good run and I'd missed that adrenaline rush that sort of um boost and lift that it gave you but um as you mentioned there um obviously you had a stroke back in 2017 um can you talk us through uh you know what happened uh you know uh, with that yeah, yeah. Like like we've just been saying, I was into running. Uh, so I was quite fit and always looked after myself uh, with the exercise I was doing for the football and the running. Uh, so, yeah, fit and healthy. It was me and my wife's anniversary night. We went out for a meal with the children. Uh, so everything was going fine. Came home. Obviously, the children weren't as old as they are now. So what were they? They were mid-teens, both of them. And uh, so they went and did their thing in their rooms to settle down for bed and things like that. My wife went upstairs to watch her programmes. I was downstairs watching my own because we all watch different things sometimes. And me and my wife shared a nice bottle of wine and I was just sat there watching telly, got up to do something and all of a sudden I felt a bit giddy and I thought, wow, that wine's gone to my head really quick and it was only a one big glass. It wasn't as if it was a giant bottle, so uh, so I carried on watching my programs, and then I, on my way up to bed, I was a bit again unsteady on my feet, and I just thought, wow, 
that wine is really because people say, Oh, that wine goes to my head, or oh, the wine's gone to my head. And I'm never, and I thought, wow, maybe I've, that's the first time I'm experiencing it. <laughs> and again, going into the bed, I walked into the bed, and my wife says, Oh, what's the matter with you? So I feel a bit tipsy on that wine. And we left it there, settling ourselves down, got comfy. And I said, Oh, got a bit of a headache. She goes, You okay? I said, No, it's again, you don't think of a young person, how old would I have been? About, about 40 then. You don't think, oh, straight away, I'm, I'm having a stroke. So again, so we had a bit of, I had a couple of tablets to sort of relieve the pain. And uh, things escalated from there without me knowing. That's all I can remember. But my wife said later on in life, I tried to talk to her and everything. And I was just slurring. She couldn't understand me. She turned the light on. And again, I don't know how much time had, had passed. But uh, they say time is of the essence, which I believe I know it is now because that sort of short space of two to three to four hours from when I first noticed that I was feeling a bit unsteady is where a lot of the damage has happened in the brain and the visual cortex. So that my eyes are perfectly fine in themselves, but it's just that my brain has died from the lack of oxygen on a certain area that my eyes don't pick up any left field in both. They call it left hominous hemanopia. So I call it LHH. So it just means that my eyes have got no left at all in both. So I cannot, that eye works, but I cannot see that, I cannot see that finger. I don't see nothing until it's passed into my right field. And once it's in my right field, it then gets, whatever I look at gets cut in half. So the left side gets taken away of anything that I look at. So it's challenging. And yeah, I was, um, I find it quite difficult to start with at first. And um, you mentioned, obviously, uh, you know, the, the night, you you know, it kind of happened. Um, you know, did you sort of take yourself to hospital in the end or did, um, you know, after, did your wife have to call an ambulance? Yeah, yeah. Again, like I can't remember anything after myself saying I've got a headache and I had a couple of tablets. And, yeah, so my wife had to call an ambulance, a local ambulance came, and then I had to get rushed. I think it was about eight miles into the Worcester Hospital. And I was in hospital for, I believe, three or four days. And then they said, do I want to go to another hospital for rehabilitation? And uh, myself, I'm not a great lover of hospitals. I cannot settle. There's so much noise and so much activity because obviously you're sharing a, a ward with a lot of other people. So I said, any chance I can come back home and I've got family to look after me. And so they said, that's fine if it's OK. And I'm glad I did because, yeah, I came home. In my own environment, I was able to be more relaxed, be myself and get the sleep and rest the brain that they were trying to sort of save, if that makes sense. Because certain parts can um, try and heal or you've got your own little pathways and neurological issues, which I'm really suffering with because of it as well. My left side is always constantly heavy. It's constantly in pain and tingles and think, but I'm grateful I can use it. So... Uh, so I've always now myself trying to look every cloud as a silver lining. And you've mentioned about, um, you know, initially kind of your speech was slightly affected and um, obviously you've mentioned about your sight. Um, did you have any other symptoms following the stroke at all initially? Uh, one little minor thing that I remember about that particular evening is that my leg, one my left leg was going numb. I just felt like, I'd slept funny and it was like not pins and needles, but I just couldn't feel it. 
Um, but I, again, I didn't think anything of it. And one thing that was going through my mind and one thing that the doctors have said since, a lot of people try and sleep because it happened at night. Some people might have gone to sleep and think, I'll see how I feel when I wake up. But being a stroke, some people unfortunately do not wake up. So I'm grateful that I didn't try and do that particular part of it. And um, what um, sort of health professionals did you work with, you know, as part of your rehab following your stroke? Uh, oh, yeah, quite, quite a few. I mean, um, the occupational therapists, they were coming to the home. Uh, I saw a few physiotherapists. Uh, one thing that the list was for me to see, which took a lot of time, were people to deal with the neurological issues. So I couldn't really get my head around why if that make why it happened to me um, and things improve and and everything like that. And uh, to this day, I don't really. I've I've seen a couple, but they this baby. I've just got to live with it now. It's been that long. I think like with my visual they, vision, they said the first five days are the critical. If anything's going to come back, you might get a little bit of it back of the left field. Then they said, oh, maybe the next six months you might get. An... But they said hardly ever after the 12 month period, which what is it now? Six, five years, six years. Yeah, there's no chance. And I've understood that now. I mean, yourself, me and you being on the same rugby team, you see other teammates with different issues or other teammates with more issues. And I'm just grateful for the bit I have got because I know, again, it could be a lot worse. Uh, again, others which have got, they're classified as B2s or B1s. I've got friends who are B1s, completely blind. And yeah, I don't know how they how they do what they do, but everyone adapts to what you have. And I'm grateful for the bit I have. And um, how did you deal with it from sort of a mental point of view, I guess, you know, sort of uh, initially following your stroke? You know, how was that for you? And, and how did, uh, you, did very, you cope with it? To be honest, for the first year, very bad. I really, really did go down the hill quite quickly personally to myself and friends and family. Uh, in a way, it, it was strange that people wouldn't come to see me. They were scared to visit. They were scared to, in case they saw me, looking like I've had a stroke they couldn't understand me because I've had a stroke or so again that was horrible I was I wasn't confident to go outside because again just in my own house I was walking around banging into things knocking into things um I qualified for a guide dog and I'm so uh what's the word to say I think they do an amazing job guide dogs do and I think there's lots more people out there who will need them more than myself because I've seen exactly what they do uh, so I have a cane and the cane is really, once I was given the cane and taught how to use the cane, that gave me a bit of a life lifeline, if that makes sense, because it gave me a chance to go out the door, gave me a chance to, if, I, if my cane hit anything, I would stop. And because again, I went out without my cane, I was banging into things, I was knocking into people in the shop and they, if I didn't have my cane, they look at me face value and think, what are you doing? What are you and it's like, oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. And it's quite scary at first. It quite quite confrontational. There can be people bang into you or you well, not they bang to me. I've walked into them, I've climbed into them, or they expect me to see them coming and stop and I didn't. So again, I was quite um not petrified, aware of going out. 
and even sat at home on my own with the four walls. It's pointless. And I did, one of the people said, what did you do? I said, I just sat at home watching telly. But then that sounds daft, but I tried to watch telly. I don't get much of a TV screen unless I scan them constantly. And it's quite tiring looking at one end of the screen to look at the other end of the screen to catch a bit of this. And, and the basic programme or the basic thing on the screen can be challenging. So again, that was for me really hard. And I was um, very, I'm going to think of the word now, anxious, really, really anxious. And the thing, the anxiety, one of the things that gives you is sort of similar to stroke sensations. So you get different sensations, you get different feelings. So on my, what I call my good side, my right side, my arm might start tingling and I'm like, wait, oh, something happening. So then I'm more anxious and then I'm, and so, yeah, and I didn't even like being in my own, my own company. So I was quite hoping people would come to see me and I'll just, um, and so just so if they noticed anything in myself changing and even my friends and family, well, more of my family, I was going around to me, mum and dads and sitting with them just to so they would notice that any change in me because I was, but medication nowadays and the doctors have all explained certain things to me and I'm on the right journey, the right pathways and things like that so anxious wise I'm I'm more of a understanding of it all now but the first year yeah was horrendous and luckily again people might think sports don't do much for you but it was literally just over a year that I heard about the blind and visually impaired rugby so I joined the local team and again that feeling of wow, I can act, I give me um, a sort of sense of being. It gave me something to try and achieve or something to get back into because I'd lost my job being a butcher. There's unfortunately no chance of uh, handling knives and things like that with safely. So some places were a bit apprehensive to have me walking around with sharp objects with six or seven other people. Um, for one of the first things that they took off me was driving license. So again, my independence of driving went. So yeah, so no job, not much money, no driving, no independence. And all of a sudden, everything, all of that being hit at you at once is really overwhelming. So to be back playing rugby to um, for the foundation to say, yeah, come along to this. They help me with the transport. They'll say, yeah, can you get for, on a train at Malvern? I said, yeah, I can get that's no problem. What about Worcester? They said, I'll get off the train at Worcester and there'll be someone waiting for me to take me to the, the ground and then they'll take you back to the train station, make sure you get on the train. And that was a big thing for me. Even now, again, as you know, we all have the, our um, travelling to the games to play our training. And it's not easy. If the train, one train runs late, it puts the other one off and then you've got to start juggling times and everything else that and you get assistance, which without them assisting me at some places in London, I would never have a clue how to get from one to another to another. So the assistance that visually impaired people get is is good as well. So it's, yeah, it was first year was shocking, but the rugby, the sports has got me to... Uh, be where I am today so many pathways closed but even more have opened and made made it better for me 
Good. And, and you mentioned there, obviously, um, you know, you first got involved with uh, vision impaired rugby for, uh, with the uh, Worcester Warriors. Um, obviously, I first met you, uh, you know, in 2019 when we were fortunate to go out to uh, Japan. So how did Japan. you um, sort of, how did the opportunity for you come about to, to go to Japan? Yeah, again, uh, the foundation had heard, the Worcester Foundation heard about yourselves and the Change Foundation. And uh, we said, oh, we do blind rugby or hugby back then it was called. And you said, oh, we do touch and visually impaired. And um, we were going to see how our game compared to your game. So we went down to, uh, I believe, Akara Crawley. I don't know about exactly the foundation are. But we went down to there. There was a little field that we all met up there. And um, this chap, obviously we both know him now, but is Alex Basson. He was there, and me and another chap, Chris Styles, who was lucky enough to go to Japan with me and you, who was got selected on the same day, saw how we were quite nimble and had a bit of pace to get past people and good at handling the ball. So Bass had got in contact with the Worcester Foundation and said, these two lads you brought down, any chance I could speak, and speak to those and have their contact? So then so I'd introduced myself while Alex, to be fair, came to me and introduced himself on the day, and I thought, oh, was, uh, Alex, Alex, okay. And then I had a call a few days later, and it was, yeah, hi, Matt, hi, this is Alex, I saw you the weekend, blah, blah, blah. We're part of the visually impaired England rugby team. We've seen you play, we think you're really good, and we want you on the team. Oh, wow, what, what? He said, yeah, can you come down for a few training sessions? I said, yeah, yeah, gladly. And that's when I first saw you there training, we met up, had a few, and to be fair, I didn't have that many training sessions with you guys before we actually went, because I think this was sort of, because they struggled to get my classification correct. So once I got my classification, Bass said, yeah, no, that's what we needed. And I came down and had a few with yourself and the, some of the other lads. Uh, yeah, and look at us now. <laughs> but I think the, uh, the build-up to Japan, because I used to work Saturdays, I wasn't actually able to get to train. So I think the first time I sort of trained with some of you guys is, and the first time we actually trained all of us as a team was in that uh, underground car park at the uh, hotel oh, in the Japan, hotel. the old uh, typhoon oh. that yeah. <laughs> we got out there. That but, messed up uh, all the plans, but I've still <laughs> myself now, I've got a video of us all running up and down, still on my phone to this day, <laughs> underground, practicing a few of our alphas and our bravos and trying to not run into the concrete pillars that were back <laughs> and Dan were trying to like bump bumpers pushes off them in case we got too close. Yeah. <laughs> so um can you talk us through uh, the experience in Japan and, and um, obviously uh, you know how that went and uh, how, how you enjoyed the time out there? It's one of the times of my life. Not one of the best moments, but one of the things that I've experienced travelling wise, because never been to Japan or anywhere other than somewhere in Europe um, and to experience a typhoon for one that was uh, quite um, well, it wasn't that terrifying as I thought it sounded like it was going to be but as you were with me we have a, we had a 24-hour lockdown in the hotel which gave us that moment to train underneath underneath the hotel in the car park that they had and it gave it it gave us more of a bonding moment, I thought, as a team, because we were with each other, playing certain card games which I've never seen or heard before, getting on with again with each other that way. 
And uh, yeah, I think it just brought us a little bit closer than if we were able to go off and do our own thing. And so, yeah, so obviously with us being lost a day or two because of the storm, things got juggled up and a lot of other plans had to get rearranged. So I believe we were going to have sort of three different days of playing. But as it got condensed down to training day to a settling day, we only had the one big day of playing and we had to have three games against the Japanese. And so it was all in one day. So we got it completely out of the way. Absolutely shattering, absolutely tiring, aches and pains, crampy from kicked in at some stage. But it gave us the time afterwards to enjoy sightseeing and things as well. And um, obviously, you, you know, you, I think from a personal point of view, I think, you, you know, obviously you played very well in Japan. And I think, was it five tries you ended up scoring out there? I, I think so. I, I said six, but I'm sure it might have been five. I think I got six and Starzy got five. But he says it was five and four, but I still got the most. <laughs> <laughs> so so that must make you then, like, I guess, potentially the kind of leading international try scorer in the rugby. Because you got another three out in uh, in France, I think, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. But at the moment, I uh, believe my tally is up to around about nine. That's a pretty pretty good uh, record to have, to, to be fair. I'm, I'm happy at the moment, but I don't want to talk about too much about tries because they stop passing to me when they know I'm scoring too much. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, as you mentioned, you know, we were out in Japan and, um, you know, obviously had a great time out there. Um, obviously, COVID then kind of hit, didn't it? And, you know, we had, um, I think there was sort of a trip to Italy that we were going to have and then potentially alliance tour to South Africa, but obviously, uh, you know, because COVID... Changed. Yeah, really... Got cancelled, but um, how has your VI rugby career kind of uh, you know progressed from from twenty nineteen to to sort of uh, to now? Uh, it's been a bit of a hit and miss sort of thing at the moment because I don't know if people out there have been keeping an eye on the rugby and everything. Unfortunately, uh, the Worcester Warriors folded, so that means that their blind rugby didn't completely die. But um, I had to take a back stand because we didn't have anywhere to train or facilities to use. So then, um, and other people uh, had to travel from other parts. We had a chap who used to come from Gloucester, Newant. So that was quite a long way to come from Newant to Worcestershire. Um, we had two or three that used to come from Hereford all the way on the trains to Worcester. So, and in the end, um, local public transport really affected a lot of the people because certain bus routes in Gloucester where Newent is got cancelled. So a lad couldn't come from New couldn't get from Newent to Gloucester or Gloucester to Ledbury to get on the train service. And the other chaps from Hereford obviously were getting let down constantly by the trains because they're always getting cancelled. They still are now railways of so they sort of hung their boots up and thought it's not worth it. But uh, myself and Mr. Styles, who was part of the Japanese and the French France uh, tournaments, have uh, put our heads together with the Worcester Foundation, and we are got it in the pipeline to have a Worcester Stroke Midlands VI rugby team. So just getting it out there in the new year, trying to get more of a a Midlands regional VI team. So then we can train here and also then come down to yourselves or have yourselves come to us one Saturday. And again, we've got Jack and Ian who travel from Manchester, York 
and even Paul, who comes from Northern Ireland, it's a long way to go for just four, a couple of hours on a Saturday. So if we can mix it up and get two or three every other month or every month, it'd be nice to keep us all in touch and get the training and get the levels up. But it's the participants. It's a hard to get because there are a lot of VI blind people out there. It's just them hearing about it or getting the chance to come and join or get over the boundaries of thinking. Because even myself, when I heard about it, I thought, no chance am I going to play rugby. You can't seriously have the vision impaired person playing rugby. That sounds absolutely mad. That's one of the dangerous things going. But until you go on the pitch and then it's so safeguarded and they have rules for a reason. And now that we do the touch style, the VI rugby, it's it's it is really safe. It it's hardly any you do have the odd knock or two, especially you know this Aaron running into people. <laughs> um but there is never head head collision, it's always sort of a, a shoulder or a chest onto someone. And yeah, so I'll tell anyone who's listening, anyone who's interested, give it a go. It doesn't sound as scary as it did to myself or it may do to yourselves. And uh what can you tell us what position you play? Uh, they put me on the left wing, so I'm a left winger. I've got no left field division, so I don't see the line that runs down the side. I haven't got a clear line over the line, so I always try and keep myself on the field. And if I do ever get the ball or the chance to do anything, it will be either straight or to the side because I won't step left because I don't know if the line's there or if I've got anyone to collide into. So if I see a gap or anyone that I can try and dodge on the right, I'll try and have home in on them. So, yeah, I'm a left winger, so chuck me the ball and I'll try and do what I can to get away from people. And what would you say your strengths and weaknesses as a player? Uh, my strength would be being very vocal. I am quite a loud person, as you know, especially being stood next door to me and have to help me defend. Clear <laughs> again. So, yeah, my mouth is, I would say, is a strength. A lot of people would think it's a it's a terrible thing, but I'm quite uh, good at communica communicating. And for my age, I still feel I've uh, got a bit of pace. So I like to run past people and think they can't catch me. Or if someone runs past someone else, I've got the strength and the pace to catch them, especially doing my defensive role. We've got to be able to stop the other team from breaking through or running to the line. So, yeah, so another bad thing is obviously the left field division. So if someone tries to sidestep me as people doing rugby they could say go down the blind side they do literally go down the blind side <laughs> have to do where they are so that is a weakness if I've left too much space between me and the touch line that they can scoot down then yeah that's a weakness so I try and not do that and you, you say there obviously about um you said it's not there about the importance of obviously communication and how you feel obviously that's one of your strengths and, and I agree I think you know it's because it's so important in vision impaired sports to, you know, be like, you know, constantly talking to each other. Because, you know, especially when like I'm defending, because I can't see where my defensive line is. So if you're there telling me to get back, like that's that helps me to know, you know, to, to get back. So, as you know, a team, you... we've all got to stand up to each other's weaknesses. So if I can do a little bit of um, communicating, helping your lack of vision and then pass it on to you, and then you pass it on to the next person. It's like Chinese whispers, but we've got to get it right, because as soon as one person thinks, I've said something different, then that's when it can all go. So when someone's shouting, 
shuffle right, shuffle right. The next person has got to say exactly the same, exactly the same. So then we all shut down any gaps on the right. And if, again, myself, if I know there's big gaps to my left, I say, Aaron, shuffle left, shuffle left. And obviously you pass it on to the next person. So communicating as a team is a huge thing for us. And you cannot give a vision impaired person too much info. Uh, can't you? We'll always gladly have the more information, the more we can sort of process what's happening and what we're doing. And um, as well as communication, what are some of the other key skills you think, uh, you know, that make up a good VI rugby player? For myself or in general, anyone? In general. In general, uh, especially with the VI rugby, you need to be a fit person because there is a lot of running towards the ball because it's our style is like rugby league, I say. So you've literally got to run and two hands touch up the person who's got the ball. They will put the ball down and take a step over it. But by the time they've done that, I've had to drop five metres back to then be back on side. And then obviously their number nine, well, not number nine, their scrum half has picked it up. So that means they're now attacking again. So you've got to run and stop the attack and get back. And then it happens again and again and again until the sixth tackle and then it gets a turnover. But even if it's happening on the other side of the pitch where I'm not, I've got to constantly be behind the ball to make sure I'm not offside. So if the other chaps on the other side have ran back five metres and I'm only two metres back, the referee will blow because we're not as a solid line and they'll get another six six uh, chances of attacking. So it is it is key that we all do it one as a unit and we all up and down, up and down together because if the right side of the pitch go up to defend and I, me and, for instance, yourselves next door to me are just hanging back and feeling a bit lazy, then we've left a gap somewhere for... Obviously, the person with the ball, to, if they've got know where that gap is, they will run through that gap and they're off. So we've got to keep that straight line, that high line and togetherness so we don't let any gaps. It might sound confusing, but once you play it and understand the rules, it is it is good and really enjoyable. And um, you were obviously, as we've kind of touched on, uh, you know, part of the uh, England VR rugby team that competed at the uh, International Vision Paired Rugby Tournament in Toulon uh, a few weeks ago uh, in France. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, your experience out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, never been to France. So when I was lucky enough to go to the trials and get selected again for this tour, I was buzzing because we've had... I think there was about four, maybe five new members of the team come in to this particular team that weren't part of the one that went to Japan. So it was new faces, new people and new strengths and new weaknesses because we all bring different qualities to the team and it's knowing the right person to put them in the right place. And it makes you another bond, another friendship, another part of the team. And that was good. So we all went over there knowing each other a little bit, but being out there with certain roommates, certain people you travel with or sat with, you have that little little talk that you don't really wouldn't have had with them if you weren't doing this particular thing with them because you wouldn't have the one-to-one time or the quality time together. So you learn just about other people. There's a couple of people there which talk to you without being part of the team, not saying that they're... They're just in, in the zone with you. You sat with them. They tell you something quite personal and you think, wow. And so you do, I really thought there was a couple of people there this time 
who weren't happy, the other ones which I got a little bit more of a bond with, which I didn't expect them to actually come out with things that they said. So you've made another friend, but not just a friend, a real good, good friend. And the experience of being out there again, the weather was was amazing. It was dry, it was sunny. After having not much of a summer in England, it was nice to have it beaming down on us. But the way we trained for the first couple of intense sessions that we had, you would just wish oh, for a little tiny bit of cloud. You thought, <laughs> on bait, on bait. But as we was at Toulon, which is on the south side of France, we had such a nice beach area that we all went to. And after a good session, it was nice. Oh, the, the sea was amazing to get into and just, any aches or any to get the blood flow back to the muscles and relax any aches that you've got. That was a good thing. And we had a nice physio there who made sure that we didn't have any too many niggles, too many pulls. And if there was a, a certain part that you could go to him and say, Will, please can you sort this out or sort that out? And he had a few sessions himself booked for others and ourselves to be into. So having a physio at hand this time was really good because in Japan we didn't really uh, we had a couple of people like yourself who knew what you were doing, but it was nice to have a particular person who was just there for our needs of aches and pains. Uh, Training-wise, like I said, we had a couple of good sessions and it was good vocally and it was good knowledge to get our drills, not just what drills we were doing, but set them up in the way we wanted to set them up to manipulate the other team to make it work for us. So uh, it was you had to have your head on the game. You had to really think of certain things. And if it didn't quite go to work, then you might have to either take a tackle to reset or think really fast on your feet. And it did happen a few times. And we did. I thought we did really well as a team. And we managed to be a lot better defensive because I thought our defence would be the weak part because I know we're quite good in handling the ball. I know we were quite good at running and spreading the play but I just thought fitness wise we're not going to be able to keep up with the constant touch back touch back touch I thought the bit the constant running back five running back was going to be out but was going to be our weakness but in the end as a team as a unit it became our main strength because I don't think we let that many tries past us in the whole five games. If I had to say off the top of my head, I think it might have been three. Or, yeah, or I, think, I think we only conceded three tries across the five games. And yeah. it's interesting you say that because I, I, I felt, to be honest, like um, that I thought our defence would probably be quite good because I think generally we've always been quite good defensively, you know, um, as a team. I, I think what was probably key in some of our training matches, like when we played against Sutton and Epsom guys, was like just getting a bit of familiarity about who defends where. So you build up those partnerships in defence. And um, yeah, I think, you know, I think, true. yeah, we've always kind of built our game, like Jack said, you know, on a, from defending well. And we've then, you know, built from there and been quite, um, you know, uh, what's the word, sort of... Um, uh, ruthless in our in our attack play, you know, quite always coming away with a try sort of thing. So I think, oh, um... definitely. But again, our, my worry was the fitness. Yeah. So, but what we did at training sessions, not just in France, but when we were down at Sutton and Epsom, they were good training sessions. And the thing that we got asked to do, but was whilst we're not training here, can we still train at home? Can we still keep on top of the plans? Can we watch what we're eating? Can we watch what we're drinking? And to me, I thought, oh, I don't think they're going to do that. I don't think they're going to do that. But when we were all out there, yeah, I think everyone had up their game. 
up their fitness levels, up their mentality. And like you said, it just all fell to, together nicely. Each and every one of us did our part on the field, off the field and pre-tournament. So, yeah, I thought it was a shock to me to actually be that strong in defence and that fit. And obviously, um, you know, from our point of view, the tournament went really well. You know, we we played two games against France and two games against Ireland in the group stage and obviously won all four games. And then uh, we went on to beat uh, Ireland 15-5 in the final. Um, how was the experience for you and how did it feel to, to win the tournament? It was good, actually. Obviously, I'm such a thriving thrill and the, the buzz of winning the tournament. Because, again, everyone wants to go there to win. And people who say, oh, it's all, it is about taking part, but somewhere deep down there is that bit of you that, yeah, I want to win this. I want to win. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have the the passion or the competitiveness in everyone. So, yeah, and for us, I was there and I really wanted to win it. I wasn't there just to participate. I was there to win it. And I'm glad we did. And as a team, we, we thrived on it. We got really... Quite emotional, I thought, as ind- individuals and as a team. And uh, in the final, to be fair, I don't know if people know the chap or the, another one that we've been quite close with from the Ireland's really impaired team was Ian McKinley. He used to be a Italian professional union player who obviously got selected and he had a visual impairment from a very early age as a teenage, late, about well, early age, it was... I think he was in his late teens when his incident happened and then he managed to get qualified and selected for Italy over a amount of time. So to me, he was like, wow, we've got to be careful. We've got to be watching. And he was in my back of my head to like, if he does this, if he does that. But we contained him. He did step up to the plate in the final. He was trying to pop a few superstar throws or glamour throws to other people. But we was expecting it. And again, we read it nicely. We didn't give him a lot of space on the ball as himself. And we didn't let him sort of control the speed of the game, the pace of the game. Uh, so that I thought the final was our, one of our better games because he definitely brought his A game to it. And he tried to get a lot of all the other ones to up upskill as well and get their a game but i just thought we coped with it a lot better and where where do you think we improved as a team looking back from japan four years ago you know what were the things do you think we were better at uh you know four years later in france uh well obviously this time again jack's gone through a lot of hard work to try and find these different drills these different movements because i would say when we was in japan we had I would say about three main moves that we did. They were called alphas. So we did an alpha, we did a bravo, we did a bravo. Then we did maybe a shuffle, we did a shuffle. So they're the three that we was doing to create the space of the wings for myself and Chris to be able to score as many as we did in Japan. But this time, again, with Jack, I think Jack brought a lot more versatility to the game. We could do an alpha, we could do a bravo still because they work, they move people to where we want them. But then he was chucking in these tangos, these lemurs, 
And I'm like, oh, what's a tango? What's a lima? Obviously, we learned them. <laughs> but we get sh- every so often, you think, oh, let's do it. It's going to be a bra- next thing. Instead of a bravo, you shouted lima. So, well, God, great, great. And it, as a team, I thought we learned the new things on top of the previous ones that we learned. And I think that's one thing that we had more armory this time is the drills, is the movement, is the plays, rather than just the three. We had five or six different things that Jack could have called to move the people or do what we wanted to do on the actual field. And um, what are your sort of rugby ambitions, you know, for the future going forward? Um, Going forward, if I get selected again in four years' time, I would be buzzing. I will be 52 by then. And there's got to, there is a lot of young lads coming through the ranks who have got a lot of pace in them. And so uh, even if it's just my good looks and my humour and my jokes, I'll get selected, I'll take that. <laughs> but no, quite honestly, if I do get picked again in four years' time, that would be another huge achievement and accomplishment. But what I really want to see is the sport grow. I want to see the VI in the Worcestershire area, the Midlands area, grow. And I want to actually see the visually impaired England team being supported by the RFU, have the backing backing of the governing bodies, the people. Because it's, as you know, we have to raise so much money to self-fund ourselves to get to Japan. And we've had to raise a lot of money again ourselves personally to get to France. And raising money this day and age is not easy. You've got to ask friends. You've got to ask family. You've got to do certain events. And don't about yourself, but being visually impaired, I'm completely fed up with asking people, can you give me a lift? Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? And... When they said, Matt, what, you've got to sell fund again, we've got to raise this much, I was like, oh, God, I can't, I can't. But luckily enough, family, friends, a few businesses helped me get there. So, I, again, going forward, I want to be able to see businesses out there, sponsorships out there, governing bodies out there to make it easier for ourselves not to worry about that particular funding area because... There's so much out there with the football getting supported by the RFU. No, not the RFU, FIFA, should I say. So football gets the back in of FIFA, the blind football, so they get help. There's other disability sports, wheelchair, rugby and things like that. So they get help with certain fundings. They don't have to put a lot of their own time and money into it. So if the RFU or anyone out there could give us a boost, get us in the right direction, that would be a good thing for me to see. I'll be happy at that. And if I get to see, I was—I would like to put sort of a 10, 12-year plan on it. If I ever see VI rugby becoming a Paralympic sport and they're going to be an England or Great British team, anything like that, it will be, wow, I've been part of that at the bottom and made it grow. I want to be an advocate for it, an ambassador, anything like that to make it grow to the big levels of the younger lads and ladies coming through at the moment. It's not just for the men. The ladies can play. They're more than like happy to come along and join us and get involved. But uh, to see the younger generations now with the visual impairments have something to look forward to, have some uh, to drive to and think, oh, wow, I actually want to be on the visually impaired rugby team in 2029, 20, 2030. And I 
that will be a good thing for me to see how it's gone from not much involvement from people to have so many people can actually pick two, three teams out of it and say, England A are going there, England B can do this, or we can mix up and and have the more the merrier and it will grow the sport. Definitely. I, I think, you know, obviously I'd second that. I mean, uh, obviously been involved with VR rugby around the same sort of time as yourself and, you know, been really lucky to have uh, had some amazing moments. And, um, you know, I think the sport's only going to get bigger and better. I know the Change Foundation are doing a lot of great work and some plans, I think, to sort of help uh, get it started in a few new countries. And uh, obviously you've mentioned about... And with, our, and with the help that we're getting from Sutton and Epsom being a, a club that we can actually say, yeah, we're part of them. Yeah, we can have a kit similar to theirs, and and I think that's going to help that grow as well. Having a base where people go into to play, because all it takes is certain Epsom to have a home game against another team who I could not mention, so I don't know who their leagues are in. But all it needs is an away team to go there and see the vision impaired shield that we won, the vision impaired kit that they might have on the display, and just to talk about us. And then one of those players have got a visually impaired child and word of mouth is the best thing. So if any of the Wade fans actually go to Sutton Epsom and see that they're part or they have links with the visually impaired team and then the word gets passed down and the word gets passed down, it can only be better for the sport. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I completely agree. It's And, and I'm... I, I'm... You know, I think like you said earlier, it's, you know, it's exciting to see what the game is going to be like in, you know, sort of maybe 10, 20 years time. Hopefully we can look back on it and, and the game will be even better than it is now. Uh, but I think, you know, from our point of view, it will kind of always be able to be nice to sort of look back and think we've been involved from sort of the fairly early stages. And it'd be nice to then see the sport, you know, sort of grow in, in oh, the future. And um, that's it. Yeah. Anything that evolves to bigger and better things and being there to what, like, as we both said at the early stages, will be. A huge accomplishment is myself. You can say, when I'm a lot older, well, I'm older, and I can say to, like you say, everyone says to their grandchildren or their great grandchildren, oh, when I started that, I was there when that first started. <laughs> oh, I, back in my day, <laughs> and it'll be good to be able to speak to to uh, grandchildren. Say, I've done that when I when I was a, when I was a lad. I had to go at that and played that, and look at it now. We've um, obviously talked a lot about rugby. Um, just wondered um, if you could tell us a bit about, um, you know, any other hobbies and interests outside of rugby. Um, it, not any more than what we've discussed. I mean, I have a guide runner now and uh, his name's Greg. And he, twice a week, will knock on my door or give me a message. Matt, we're coming out for our usual run. So we like to do five miles every time we go out. Sometimes it's only four. We like to try and do five. Uh, so twice a week he does that with myself and then I have a couple of other people if Greg because Greg um, also he's a, a manager of a football team so he, with his with his son so he's busy on a Saturday morning because they're always playing and one thing I do like to do is a park run so when he's not when he's not doing with the football or he is available he says Matt do you fancy a park run and again I have a couple of other local friends that Ian say Matt what I'm doing is park run can I be your guide and I say yeah yeah please do and there's a young lady called Rianne she again is another one if her and her boyfriend Nick gives me a bow let's come and do a park run oh yeah please please because I just love 
love doing these park runs. It's a 5K, so friendly. So many people do them. The atmosphere, again, is you have a natter, you talk to people, and even afterwards, you have a social coffee. And, it, and again, that's a Saturday morning. Because if I weren't doing them, and sometimes, obviously, my wife works, and then I'm scroll out of bed, it's sort of half past ten, I'm like, oh, God, the day's gone. So when I'm getting picked up at eight o'clock in the morning to run at nine, I've got to get up, and I, I am up and ready, but it gives you a good, fresh feeling as well. Yeah, come on, it's half nine. I've done 5K. What else am I going to do for the rest of the day? So the park runs and jogging, I, I love. I get the local, not just yourselves with, there's a local Malvern rugby team which do a touch session every Wednesday. So in the evenings, they were going to be doing it now, but I'm late. So I've already let them know that I can't do tonight. So <laughs> that's your fault, Aaron. So uh, <laughs> that's another thing I do on Wednesday. And... Um, I've actually been asked, it might sound bizarre, to go and participate at one of their local pubs in their darts team. <laughs> and they said it would be amazing to have a blind person in their darts team. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say blind, but I am registered blind, but I say visually impaired. To have a visually impaired person in their team and still win, because I'm quite lucky. So, again, looking at a, looking at a dartboard, if I look at 20, I only see half of 20. So I see the right side of the 20 and the one. I don't actually see the five. So for me, I've only got the one. It's okay, it's a small target, but I've only got that target to get. And if I do miss that target, I've got more of the 20 that I don't see that it'll go into. So not that after now, I would get a five. I'm either, oh, that's lucky, it's still in 20, or that's completely off and it's gone in the one. So having less... So having less vision has made my darts a bit more accurate. So I've, I've been playing the weekend just gone and people go, I'll give you a game, I'll give you a game. Go on then, go on. They're all close. I mean, doubles, I'm shocking. I've, I've always been shocking at getting the doubles, but if they go in, because I can only see a tiny bit of the double now, if they go in, I'm like, wow, yeah, great. And I did actually win a fair few games. So they said, Matt, well, what are you doing Wednesday? I said, oh, this Zoom meeting. Which they said, can I get to the pub for half six? And I said, yes, which I'm going soon. <laughs> so, no, so I'm going to go up there this evening, have a look. If they need me, they need me. And so that's another thing. I used to have a go at darts, but now they've said, come along and try. Brilliant. And it's going to be, I'll, I'll let you know how I get on, Aaron. Please yeah, do. Things. Well, uh, listen, Matt, it's been a, a pleasure uh, having you on. You know, thank you very much for uh, for sharing your story. And uh, obviously it's been uh, you know, privileged to get to know you over the last few years and share some great moments on the rugby field. And uh, hopefully we'll have a, a few more yet. And, um, you know, uh, look forward to following your journey and, and seeing and you very late. Thanks to you, mate. I've really enjoyed it. Anytime you know me, I like to get my name, my voice, my face. Well, not my voice, because I hate the sound of my own voice. <laughs> I like to get out there where I can. And I know you give me a heads up on some of the questions. And one that you haven't asked me was about my star rugby player. When I was growing up, I, I look, even had to think who it was. It took me yeah. ages to think it was, and it's got to be Rory Underwood. Okay. He was the one I used to watch. He wasn't, you can you can say, Matt, you're actually wrong. I believe he was a winger. He, well, he scored a lot of tries anyway. I knew he was quite nifty. And uh, there was him and his brother. So, yeah, I remember the Rory and well, the Underwood brothers, and I preferred Rory because I think he scored more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think you know that's a. I mean, probably slightly, slightly before my my time, but um, I think <laughs> only just mate, of, only just. 
<laughs> I think he's England's all-time uh, try scorer. So uh, you know, it's oh, not there a bad you go. Have like Forty-nine him. tries, I, I think like it is. Him. So um, I'm, yeah. I'm leading. I'm leading the way for the visually impaired England team. He's leading the way for the, the proper England team. Obviously, why? <laughs> <laughs> brilliant well uh, like I say Matt thank you very much for uh, joining us and no uh, look pal. forward to uh, uh, catching up again soon I hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt the next episode of the podcast will be out on the 26th of November and as always thank you very much for listening <laughs>